House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Joining us now are uh, Dr. Michael Stone and Dr. Gary Brucato. Thank you for being here, guys. Welcome, sir. Thank you. It's our pleasure. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you guys get interested in writing these types of books? Like your your book is The New Evil, and your last book was called Anatomy of Evil. So uh, w- what brought you together and got you into this subject? Well, Michael, why don't you, uh, why don't you handle that one? Well, I can start with the, with the, uh, with the first part, because in other words, The, the Anatomy of Evil was done um, um, <clears throat> uh, some years ago, ten years ago, uh, and then Gary and I have only been working together for the past two years. Um, the, but originally it got started even earlier. Uh, I mean, the, the the inspiration, if you want to call it that, back in 87 when I went out to California to help uh, as an expert witness on behalf of Joe McGinnis, the author who had written a book, Fatal Vision, about uh, the um, <clears throat> Queen Beret uh, vet, uh, officer, Jeffrey McDonald, uh, who had come back to the States and, and was living with his uh, wife and, and, and children in North Carolina. Um, <clears throat> he ended up uh, killing his uh, wife and, and his uh, two daughters um, when she had spotted. She came back unexpectedly early, let's say from a psychology class out there and one evening, and she saw him uh, doing something inappropriately sexual with uh, the older uh, daughter, uh, and I uh, imagine she upbraided him for that. And at that point, uh, he uh, became infuriated and, and uh, killed, stabbed to death his pregnant wife and, and the two children. And then pretended that it was not really done by him, but by some people that invaded the house. Uh, and at first, he was let go as though the army believed him and, and so that he was like an innocent man. And Joe McInnes and he... Uh, worked together on a book uh, about the incident and so on. They became buddies. But then in the course of time, not too much time either, uh, the uh, stepfather of the dead, uh, of the murdered wife, found uh, other evidence, uh, suitcases left in certain places, uh, neighbors' comments from the air conditioning vent where they overheard stuff that made it very clear that Jeffrey McDonald was guilty after all. So at that point, uh, that really severed the friendship between McGinnis and McDonald, and and McGinnis had to write a quite different book. Uh, (laughs) I was then, uh, but the interesting thing was that McDonald, a psychopath that he was, uh, was angry at uh, McGinnis, like, where's my royalty money, uh, you know, for the, we were supposed to share royalty money for the book, which became a popular book, and even uh, so, uh, the law says that you know if you're uh, if you kill somebody and then someone writes a book about it or you write a book about it, you don't get royalty money. Uh, <laughs> and I went out to California uh, and uh, along with another forensic psychiatrist and, uh, and tried to uh, enlighten the jury about what kind of a guy this was and, and where uh, this particular murder fell in the grand scheme of other terrible acts. For example, it was worse than a crime of passion, um, but it was not as bad as a, uh, a man who 
uh, tortured, uh, and before he killed, and, and such as Ian Brady in England, who with his girlfriend, Myra Hindley, would uh, lure and capture children in the uh, isolated area in the British Moors. And then uh, Ian Brady would strangle the children, record the screams on the tape recorder, and use that, believe it or not, as a, uh, as a sexual uh, <laughs> measure, you know, to sort of uh, heighten the the, uh, the the sexual pleasure between him and Myra. It's totally sick. So that was the worst thing I knew uh, at the time. But it was the beginning of the creating of the scale, and I figured that uh, Jeffrey McDonald was in the middle somewhere because it was a lot worse than a crime of passion, uh, where you, uh, let's say, catch your wife or, or lover or whatever, you know, uh, being unfaithful, sleeping with somebody else, uh, and then you you kill those people or, or one of them. Uh, but it was not as bad as Ian Brady. And then at that point, I began reading true crime books because uh, a whole book gives a lot of information about the uh, the early years, often of the of the the killer, uh, and therefore, especially as a psychoanalyst, I get interested in what might it be the early background of such men and what motivates them to do these terrible things. Uh, <clears throat> whereas if you just read a little magazine article or newspaper article, it doesn't tell you all of those um, facts about the early background of the person. So I now have a, a rather large library of over 800 true crime books of that sort, mm. and uh, which include um, over almost 200 serial killers and many other uh, rapists and, and, mur- and mass murderers and, and various other kinds of people who do uh, evil acts. And the uh, so then as I began to read more and more of these books, uh, obviously there were in between places that were uh, a little bit worse than the crime of passion, but not quite as bad as what uh, Jeffrey McDonald had done. So eventually I ended up with uh, 22 different gradations on the scale. I mean, it was an arbitrary number. One could uh, imagine a scale that had fewer numbers or maybe one with more, but uh, I settled on 22, 22 being the, the worst, where there's not only murder, but extreme torture uh, before the murder uh, as about the worst thing that one can do in the, in the way of evil. Uh, so that was uh, the uh, the book that, that came from that uh, about 2009, I think, 10 years ago. Uh, and then uh, in the last couple of years, uh, Dr. Bocato and I have uh, gotten together and uh, expanded on this theme. And, and because we've noted that a lot of uh, very terrible crimes uh, that occur recently are unique in the sense that they hardly ever occurred earlier than the 1960s. So there's something that changed in the last 50 years uh, in the way of... Uh, <laughs> an awfulness of what one person may do to another, uh, horrid things in, in peacetime, mind you, that hardly ever happened before. Of course, in wartime, the vets are off. The unspeakable things have happened uh, between one bunch of people and another bunch of people uh, going back to the beginning of time. But we're, our focus is on the terrible things uh, that are so bad as to elicit the um, the name of the word of, hor- of evil, uh, things that strike people as evil, they'll, they'll gasp and they'll, they'll wince and, and they'll, they'll say, oh my God, that was evil. When they hear about some very, very terrible, especially torturous act 
that one person said mm-hmm. to another. You know, in my own background, I had sort of the dual focus in my career uh, across my clinical work where I had forensic training and experience, uh, you know, um, working in uh, hospitals with people that were incarcerated, uh, forensic patients, uh, working doing volunteer work that was prison work. Uh, I worked in a, in a Rikers Island unit uh, that was a psychiatric unit uh, at Umbrus Hospital. Uh, did a lot of, um, you know, training and had to do evaluations like the hair psychopathy checklist and uh, competency exams and so forth, reports to the family courts and and things like that. And um, and at the same time, I was really working in the area of early psychosis, which is called attenuated psychosis, sort of the, the phase of, of softer psychotic symptoms before someone has a, a psychotic break if and maybe never will. Uh, and I, it's the, the latter work, and increasingly the former work now that I that I do um, at Columbia Medical Center at a, at a place called Cope Central Prevention Evaluation, which is for young people that are at risk of psychosis and and potentially violence. And um, what happened is that that along the way I became very interested in what it is that wasn't mental illness, what it, what wasn't psychosis or severe depression or mania, so forth, driving crime. And, um, of course, you know, the more you look into this stuff, the more you realize that it's, it's a lot more complicated. There are people with particular personality configurations, particularly psychopathy, sadism, and so forth, that could really drive uh, serious crime. So I got it in, in, in my mind that I wanted to write a book to help people make these distinctions, and I was interested myself. And um, I wound up acquiring a, several large caches of artwork and letters by infamous you know, serial killers and so forth from a few different parties and in analyzing them, you know, just found myself sort of mesmerized and and how informative they were and revealing they were. And I brought them to a colleague, uh, well, I spoke about them to a colleague here, a psychoanalyst uh, named uh, Clarice Kessenbaum, who then said, oh, you've got to get together with with Michael Stone. This, of course, a name very familiar to me because uh, Michael's work had been, um, you know, very important to me in in, in, in my private studies and in my clinical work, it's easy to underestimate uh, Michael's influence on the world of personality disorders and, and the, the history of personality disorders and how they're treated and understood and uh, certainly knew his scale quite well from the TV show Most Evil that he had on Investigation Discovery and from his book and Evil. And of course, you can imagine uh, the honor uh, uh, that uh, I would be the person to write the follow-up. <laughs> to Anatomy of Evil with him, uh, and um, and and over the past you know couple of years, uh, you know we we have really gotten into this stuff, and um, you know and and um, I think really um, added a little bit to the, to the scale to flesh it out, so that now it can accommodate uh, crimes that people were a little confused about where they went in the scale, and um, and I think what you're left with is a is, is a scale that really is not particularly arbitrary, but in fact um, establishes categories that I think very cleverly manage to, on the one hand, demonstrate the full spectrum of pathological behavior, uh, you know, uh, in terms of personality organization from narcissism through psychopathy all the way to sadism, but at the same time allows for research and study. And there are several groups that have already told me that, you know, they're doing research um, where they're trying to see if these categories, uh, you know, hold weight or, or have predictive value uh, or, 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 or help 
people you know better understand the motivations of of certain killers or, or rapists or so forth. So you know we're very proud of the work and and it culminated in this book, the the the, the new evil. Dr. Bra- Dr. Bacato, uh this is Mike Hawley. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, re- I, I research uh, the Whitechapel murders of Jack the Ripper, but the uh, but the uh-huh. question I have is, I can see this scale uh, being uh, they're wanting to be used in court. Uh, uh-huh. Is do you see that happening? As well, in it, uh, it, it, finding out mm-hmm. how evil this person is. So what do they get? What kind of crime should we? I mean, uh, what should we give them? Well, okay. So, for, so first of all, I think there's a couple of sort of ground rules we sort of lay out. Well, first and foremost, I think it's very critical for the listeners to understand. I think Michael would really echo this: that when we use the word evil, we are not talking about it in a kind of metaphysical or a supernatural sort of way. What, we, what we're referring to is evil as a psychological, emotional reaction. Um, that people have to a crime, regardless of you know where they're living on Earth or when they're living, they will have a, an emotional reaction, which is sort of horror, shock, bewilderment to a extreme um, premeditated act. Um, that that where, where we all sort of understand that reaction, and it sends us groping for words, you know, like evil, and that's sort of what we're what we're interested in is. You know that psychological reaction. Wouldn't you say, Michael? It's really a, a, a reaction word more than a. Yes. We're talking about, about something, you know, supernatural. And um, and and once you understand that, then the idea of the scale is that it's really about acts that ha- that evoke that reaction more than others. I mean, that's really the idea. So when we say it could be used in court, where I think it's useful, I mean, uh, you know, is the way Michael was talking about it, where he originally envisioned it. That its purpose is to to help people understand that not all acts, um, even if they have they fall under the same heading like murder, are equally terrible, because some of them for some reason are more shocking to us than others. Why is that? Because there's something else going on, like you know, like the, the added touch of of sadistic cruelty or premeditation and so forth. So a, a simple example of this, um, I, I, I'll just give you two very quick examples of cases that both involve the same motivation. So um, these are cases that were widely reported in the media, and you'll see the trouble um, if you don't think about it the way we do, um, the way the law doesn't know how to make a distinction. So, for example, um, there was a man in Maine, uh, his name was Samuel Collins, uh, and um, very supposedly very nice man, so forth, his family father, and he was married to a woman that he was very crazy about, absolutely adored her. They had a healthy marriage as far as he knew everything was. So one day he decided to surprise her at the supermarket where she worked. And when he walked in, he found her kissing a co-worker. He became extremely enraged, filled with jealousy. And when she returned home, he abruptly stabbed her to death, tried to kill himself you know, by knife. He survived as I understand it, had subsequent remorse, so forth. It was totally out of character for him. It was essentially a crime of passion, of jealousy. Then you compare that with the infamous case that's called the parachute murder case, which was in Belgium, as I I recall. It's a woman named Els Klortermans, and she and another woman developed a kind of a love triangle where they they had an agreement, basically, where they were courting the same man having relations with the same man sort of on a schedule. I'll see him on Monday, you see him on Tuesday, such and such. What happened is, on one particular night, they were all under the same roof, 
They were preparing that, you know, in about a week or so, they were going to go on a skydiving trip together. They were all skydivers. That's how they met, I believe. And um, while two, while, while um, El Chodemann was in the, the living room, I think, the, the other woman and, and this guy were in the other room, and I think she overheard them making love or something like that. She became filled with jealousy and reportedly severed the release cord on the parachute that the other woman would be using. And a week later, when they went skydiving, she watched, stuck her head out, and sort of calmly watched as the other woman jumped out, couldn't release her parachute, and humbled two miles to her death. Uh, and, um, and, and so you see that in both cases, we're talking about jealousy as the motivation, but what the law is sort of not really grasping when they think about the idea of crime of jealousy is that these are two very different types of people, where in one case you had premeditation and cruelty where you thought about it for a week and then did the act and, and did something that was so extreme and over the top it wasn't necessary, mm-hmm. right? One could shoot someone quickly and painlessly as opposed to enjoying watching them fumble to the death for two miles. And, and you know, so, so I think where it comes in handy, I think that was precisely Michael's original intention, was to find a way to make people understand the depth of depravity that could be really behind <laughs> behind mm-hmm. a certain criminal act. Isn't that correct, Michael? Yes, yeah, so there's another element to this also, and that is that the people mm-hmm. at the far end of the scale uh, embody generally uh, the concept mm-hmm. of psychopathy as delineated by Robert Hare in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and uh, and the, the real point, uh, despite uh, Ken Keel's uh, somewhat... Uh, I think over optimistic impressions about uh, what one can do uh, therapeutically for a psychopath, which I think is very little. Uh, the point is that the psychopaths are, for all intents and purposes, untreatable, uh, and therefore, if, if there's a there would be a utility in the prison in, in the um, in the court situation, the court situation. Right. Uh, to, be, to say that this person, besides having murdered so-and-so or whatever, uh, is, has uh, the distinct features in the marked degree of psychopathic personality. Therefore, uh, the idea of giving him uh, 10 years with free offer good behavior is not a wise move. Right. <laughs> because he is highly likely to reoffend if he ever were released and, the, the, and, and do the similar vicious things to uh, other people. Uh, and I know the, the lawyer, of course, the, the defense attorneys are, are very much against <laughs> that idea because they're busy trying to get the person either off altogether or with the least possible punishment. Uh, and the prosecution, of course, uh, is, is on the side of, um, I think, the average average guy, mm-hmm. the average woman who wants the really terrible untru- and least trustworthy people to have the most uh, extended uh, uh, jail sentences or whatever, uh, so that they do not uh, reoffend and commit other heinous crimes. So mm-hmm. that, but but judges are a little bit uncomfortable, I think, uh, honoring that uh, that psychopaths should be dealt with in a harsher way and a more mm-hmm. uh, more serious way than people who do not embody the psychopathic traits. But uh, it's, it's a big issue for law. But I, I of course, I'm, and I think Dr. Bocato and I are on the side of wanting the concept to be more uh, widely used so that the mm-hmm. most dangerous people get the longest sentences. Mm-hmm. 
Right. I, I could see it being put into practice here in Canada, especially in our regard to our uh, dangerous offender designation. Um, uh, typically, uh, if an offender is determined to be uh, a dangerous offender, they are in jail for an indeterminate amount of time. It, it's likely that they won't ever get out. People like Clifford Olson and Chris Paul Olson. Bernard. Yeah. Like yeah. Olson, yeah, sure. Yeah. So I mean, Olson, Olson I, or, or, or Terry Driver, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, Terry Driver, uh, uh, my co-host on Dark Poutine, actually uh, grew up with his brother and and watched movies with Terry Driver as a, as a kid, and interestingly cool. got got some really in good insight into that family. And um, there was apparently a room full of Nazi paraphernalia in that house. Hmm. Mm. Mm. Interesting. It's interesting because you you're sort of suddenly raising a point there that which is you know where are these kind of people bred? I mean, is it about hereditary factors or are there these kind of environmental uh, factors that can that can influence this kind of behavior? What kind of combination do you need? You know, and um, we're always fascinated. Cause Michael and I have found cases where people have a, what seems to be a purely hereditary um, sort of psychopathy, what you call primary psychopathy, but then, you know, there's a, a conspicuous amount of, of you know, uh, negative, you know, adverse um, childhood experiences in a lot of these people, um, and, uh, you know, this what we call secondary psychopathy, but it, it does seem to involve a mixture. In fact, uh, Michael, we were just talking about this, about how, you know, it's interesting to think about if someone who has the hereditary features of a psychopath, a, a kind of a sensation-seeking, bored, you know, kind of uh, unafraid, remorseless kind of person um, happens to have a good upbringing, you know, the kind of parents that, uh, you know, teach them right from wrong and are always there for them and so forth, they might wind up in a pro-social kind of career. You know, this might be the kind of person who fearlessly runs into a fire or rescues people or breaks up fights um, because they're bent, you know, twisted in the direction of liking other people. Um, you know, whereas, this, you know, the the, the bad uh, abuse or so forth, alcoholic parents, so forth, whatever, that a lot of these people have might be what pushes them in the other direction. The trouble with that is, well, it's twofold. One is you've got plenty of people who grow up in adverse environments that don't become psychopaths, right? And then you've got, um, you know, you, you've got to, to try to explain why it is that some people seem to just have the genetics. Michael, wouldn't you say, for example, Ted Bundy is an example of somebody that simply had no environmental explanation uh, for his uh, for his behavior, correct? Yeah, that's the one I, the example I, I use. I have about half a dozen. I was just looking uh, at my Excel sheet in front of me here on the computer uh, of uh, no. serial killers. But Ted was the one that had the violent uh, grandfather who may have actually been his real father through incest by the, the mother. And he then, the, the mother fled from him with her little baby Ted um, when he was about two, uh, out west in, in, in Seattle. Uh, and she married Bundy, a uh, working-class guy, you know, who was a nice person, never uh, laid a hand, let alone spanked uh, Ted. He was not neglected, Ted. Uh, he was uh, you know, brought up, well, he was a bright fellow. He was, uh, spent a year in law school. Uh, however, uh, he appeared to have the genetic predisposition to that kind of very low empathy, low capacity for compassion uh, and th that is characterized as the psychopath. Uh, so uh, he already killed somebody when he was a teenager. 
uh, and then when he uh, became enamored of a, a particular woman from a higher social class than his, uh, she eventually rejected him. She <laughs> perhaps she sniffed other things about him that were unsavory besides simply the fact that he wasn't, uh, you know, from as money a background as hers. And at that point, uh, he began killing women that were lookalikes of the rejecting fiancé. Uh, and he killed uh, probably two and a half dozen or more uh, women uh, who looked very much like uh, that woman that uh, had dared <laughs> to refuse his advances. Do you? Do you folks feel like uh, complicated family relationships like that, like adoption and those kind of things, often play a, a role in this sort of development, especially in regard to uh, becoming uh, misogynistic or like really hating women? Hmm. Well, there's let's put it this way: the the, the uh, among serial killers, just to focus on that one group. The uh, number who come uh, from uh, who are ad- adoptees basically mm-hmm. is around uh, 14 to 16 percent. That is six or seven times or more greater than the number of people in the United States who are adoptees, which is about two percent. So right. there's two there's two factors there. One that sometimes there's an awful clash between the uh, the adopting parents and the and the child. Um, or, or especially if the parents also have natural children and maybe they uh, have a somewhat depreciatory attitude towards the adopted child. So in other words, there could be environmental factors that are just advantageous to the development of the adopted kid that make him angry and feel hurt and un- unloved, etc. But the, the other factor, the genetic factor, is that especially in the last uh, two generations, when we have the pill and abortion, uh, and so on, uh, there are fewer uh, kids, you know, from uh, good families, as it were, who, uh, <clears throat> where there's a pregnancy, um, it, it can be uh, like a high school girl from a good family that uh, gets in the family way and, and uh, she might have an abortion. Or uh, she uses the pill from an early age and she never gets pregnant in the first place. So therefore, those, uh, the, the adoption pool uh, is already different from what it was when I was growing mm-hmm. up many years ago. And, and yeah. Particularly if they adopt from uh, Eastern Europe uh, and Bulgaria, Romania, where the children mm-hmm. uh, often come from uh, very, very poor uh, alcohol-abusing and, and drug-abusing uh, people, but a woman is shacking up with a prostitute and getting a kid up for uh, you know, in the orphanage who stays there for two and a half years and ends up with brain damage because of the poor care in the orphanage, those uh, those persons are more apt to develop uh, brain damage and uh, psychopathic and other serious personality disturbances that make them more prone to, uh, to commit crime. Yeah. The reason I ask uh, was just because uh, I'm an adopted person myself, and so I have been through some uh, some... Uh, psychological issues when I was younger around that kind of thing. So I've always kind of been watching myself for, <laughs> you know, am I am I one of those people? And as, as far as I can gather, because I haven't killed anybody, I don't think I am. <laughs> well, I have a question about that also is both either if, if it's uh, environmental or if it was genetic, you know, the cognitive neuroscientists talk about that cognitive pathway for the amygdala, prefrontal cortex and that insula where where that the lack of remorse is comes from and then mm-hmm. uh, 
that pathway, can, you can see it getting affected both environmentally or maybe that particular family, the, the genetics, the, the insula pathway just isn't there as much. Yes, you know, the Nobel Prize winning person at Columbia, Eric Kandel, just came out with a book uh, a week or so ago uh, that I've just been almost finished reading uh, where he talks about uh, the disordered mind. I think that's the title of the book, actually. Hmm. And he has a chapter on psychopathy and and other serious personality disturbances. And he shows the the, the, uh, brain pathways is the amygdala, the hippocampus, the nucleus accumbens, and then the frontal lobes, all of the areas that are different uh, in, in, in the insula, as you mentioned, you know, where uh, the, the, if you're lacking too many neurons in that area, you have a hard time developing empathy for others and so on, that predispose to the development of the psychopathic personality. And, and that, of course, uh, is a, a forerunner of, uh, many awful, uh, you know, behaviors because uh, at, the, at, at the best you might have a psychopath who's just a wheeler dealer on Wall Street, uh, you know, who cheats and, and gets rich, you know, by cheating others, but doesn't ever hurt anyone physically. All the way to the kinds of psychopaths that Dr. Bracado and I are interested in, who commit not only murders but oftentimes uh, ones of unspeakable uh, awfulness and torture, where. Uh, the word evil it leaps out of the mouth of anyone who hears about it. Likening, you know, would certainly be a good example of then of, of 22, and so would, of course, David Parker Ray, who Michael and I have really placed at the very pinnacle of the scale. He's, he's just so awful that he almost sort of tops the other Category 22s, Michael, would you say? Yes, I've often thought that maybe we need a 23 for him. Right. <laughs> Because of the, the torture, you, know, you can hardly, you can't even talk about it, uh, you know, in, in public or on, on television. Because you can't show the pictures that uh, that I have, that the uh, the police officers in New Mexico gave me when I interviewed his accomplice Cindy Hendy uh, for the Discovery Channel program, because they're uh, they're uh, just too disturbing, you know, and hmm. not something to be shown in the newspaper or the, in the public. Um, uh, I, I mean, for, I'm not sure if um, the listenership would, how familiar they would be with the case of David Parker, but perhaps we could briefly uh, describe it. Would that be, would that be helpful? I would like, I would like that. Yeah, please do. Well, well, um, well David Parker Ray was a, <laughs> quite a character. I, uh, uh, he was a kind of a charming, in some ways, uh, mechanically minded, uh, you know, mechanically gifted, I would say, man. Um, who in you know in his youth was um, abused and um, sent away to live with grandparents that were also abusive. He had an alcoholic father who um, the only bonding he really ever had with the father was the father showing him pornographic magazines while intoxicated. That that I, I always thought was psychologically significant because it, it seems to represent the moment at which a bond you know the idea of bonding with another person over pornography or something like that. Um, you know, was first potentially formed, um, but but all throughout his life, he did form these perverse alliances with people. Um, you know, whether it was girlfriends, uh, ultimately Cindy Hendy, one of his girlfriends, who was part of the torturing of people. Um, uh, he was even involving dogs, German shepherds, in the torture of girls, so that he loved very much. Uh, so he had this sort of fragmentation to his personality, where there were 
certain people that he was able to let into the secret world. And what happened is that while he was working as a park ranger out in New Mexico, he was gathering junk, you know, objects and so forth. And little, you know, did anybody know that he was bringing all of this stuff home and, and transforming it into devices that could be used for the most exquisite types of torture. Uh, and um, what happened is he spent over $100,000 creating a, a place that he called the Toy Box, which was a kind of tra- a soundproof trailer out in the desert. And um, what he would do is he would use Cindy Hendy, you know, use whatever woman was in his life at the time, but Cindy Hendy, ultimately his daughter even, to to go out and sort of either drug drinks or or lure women. They would, you know, he would sometimes pose the police officer. And when the woman got in the car, Cindy Hendy would come out of the bathroom, you know, be uh, in the trailer, uh, in a trailer. She would come out of the bathroom, attack the woman. And what they would do is they would sometimes they would put a, a box over the head of the woman, a homemade contraption that was designed to completely disorient the woman. So she's bound and now has this kind of box on her head. Um, and, and often they would even put duct tape all over the head, covering the eyes and so forth, and then the box on top. And what would happen is that the poor woman, the poor victim, would wake up, often hoisted by chains, uh, in the trailer, in the, in the toy chat, the toy box, and Ray would just sort of hit play on a tape recorder where he had a, a pre-recorded message that worked out to anywhere from 10 to 17 pages if you type it out, depending on where you type it out, where in this terrible kind of monotonous voice sounds like a form letter she just breaks down every methodical kind of horrendous sexual psychological torture physical torture that these women are going to be subjected to and they would be uh and after several days he would then um essentially drug them or engage in what he thought was sort of brainwashing and then just sort of dump the person on the street or probably kill them he said in his um journals that he killed sound like up to 70 women, if I remember, across his life. But he was ultimately never convicted of murder because he died <laughs> during the process and got away with everything. But 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 um, but he did write extensive journals describing murder and the ranking of women he had sexually assaulted um, all the way back to age 13. If I remember Michael's first victim when he was 13, he tied a woman to a tree and tortured yeah. her to death. Um, and, um, you know, so, so, you know, but, but he was, it was just, that the, the tortures that he subjected the women to were so incredibly protracted, you know, we're talking, you know, I can't even describe them uh, on, on, you know, in public. Um, but, but, you know, it, 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 it's beyond anything that you, I think, your imagination as a, as a healthy person could cook up. And one, one of the victims, actually, uh, I recall from, from your book, you mentioned that she even doubted that that had happened to her, that she had been brainwashed and drugged so well that uh, right. she, she was not even sure that it wasn't a nightmare. That's right. It was coming back to her only in dreams. And then ultimately, when the police were, were looking for people to come forward, you know, that it all came back to her very quickly. But, but, you know, Ray was very adept at things like that. He had a large library of books on, you know, on uh, medical care and female anatomy and um, things like Satanism, all kinds of things like that. And just to give you an example, one of his favorite things to do was to electrocute a woman uh, to the point of near death and then to resuscitate her using medical equipment so that she could be brought back only to be tortured again to the point of near death. Uh, So the woman was being jolted repeatedly with enormous amounts of electricity just about passes away, and then he's using paddles and so forth to bring her back 
only to do this again. And, and in the meantime, you know, Cindy Handy is in the group, who incidentally was just released uh, from prison, yeah. uh, is sort of standing by on the side and watching all this out of a kind of a devotion to him. Uh, fortunately, it all came to an end when when um, he sort of stepped out of the trailer and Cindy Handy was alone with the, with the, the last victim, Cindy Vigil, and she stabbed uh, Cindy Handy with an ice pick um, and was able to grab the keys, get out of a dog collar she was in, run naked out of the trailer and, um, you know, run to someone who helped. And um, law enforcement was, you know, they just simply had never seen anything like it. And, um, you know, here we are. So, hmm. but so, 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 I mean, I, and it's, and you can see listening to the story that you're almost certainly experiencing the emotional reaction that we described with all of the, the, the inability to fathom how somebody could do something like that and how horrible it is. Yeah, just the, the the revulsion and uh, how right. does some how does sex get mixed up in that? One of the most fascinating qualities I think about this type of character is the is the mechanism, the psychological mechanism that's called splitting. Um, so that and, and Michael serves as something of an authority on uh, on these types of personality disorders, and I think you could really speak eloquently about it. But what I'll say quickly is that. What we see in these types of people are double lives where, you know, we envision them being evil all day long, meaning that they, they commit evil acts all day long, acts that we would describe as evil on the scale. Because um, we don't really say that a person is evil. Their acts are, right? But, but, yeah. but, but the idea would be that they don't commit evil, you know, dusk to dawn every single day. So what happens to these people is that they, they, they can be just like, David Parker Ray, good co-workers, you know, funny, likable, you know, have a girlfriend, you know, uh, you know, have a daughter, they get along with well, and so forth, and then in private have this other life. It's interesting about Ray is that he was sort of intermingling them, but uh, but 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 he did he did have um, this 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 kind of splitting with regard to women, where, for example, the woman who was working with him to torture people was put on something of a pedestal. She would be called the mistress and he was the master. There was one incident, for example, I read about when I was reading his biography to write um, the vignette on him for the new evil. Uh, it, it amazed me. He had a woman that he had captured that he, he tortured horribly. And then he started to sort of feel something for her. And he said to her, you know, if I had known that you were a good woman, but, you know, I, I would never have mistaken you for the kind of person that I would normally bring to the toy box. And, uh, you know, and it's uh, you can imagine how this woman was feeling when he said that to her. So question on the, uh, the there's uh, different types of, uh, for especially serial, serial, serial killers, there's a lot of different kind of motives. One would be sadosexual, but how about uh, like the anger retaliatory and things of that nature? Have you identified those as well? If you look at the scale... Look, see, you're getting, you're touching on something very interesting. You're, you're touching on, you know, uh, on the issue with the way that serial killer is presently defined. Because in the original conceptualization, and I'll tell you, I, I heard a story from Ann Burgess, you know, the prominent uh, researcher. We, we know her well, and and um, as I recall the story, she told me that when that term was first created, serial killer, it had nothing to do with the idea of a serial or sequence of victims. It had to do with what used to be called years ago a serial movie or a cliffhanger or one of these kind of installment movies that you would see 
before uh, the main picture when we went to the movies in the 30s or 40s. They would do a cliffhanger like um, Flash Gordon or Dick Tracy or something. And the villains in those serials were so stereotyped, evil all the time, wearing black, you know, just wicked day day and night, that the original idea was a serial killer was somebody that was sort of a a stereotype of wanting to do evil for the sake of evil. Mm. And eventually, you know, it just sort of worked out that serial had a double meaning, um, and then it sort of caught on as meaning sequence. Um, but, but see, what you're touching on is this. When the concept was first created, they defined the number of people necessary to meet criteria for serial killing, but they emphasized that serial killing required an, that, that, that the killing was in, in the service of abnormal psychological gratification, which was, was typically psychosexual. Now, the definition simply requires that you kill two people separated in time, you know, remember with the cooling off period, so that, for example, if a person who's just practically motivated, kills, let's say, uh, a guy running a deli during the course of a hold-up, and then five months later kills a banker during a hold-up. That is a, now a serial killer. See, but but this is a problem because, it, first of all, it also has enormous effects upon the statistics that are being used <laughs> to look at, you know, all kinds of features of serial killers. But true serial killers, they really seem to fall into four subtypes. Uh, you know, correct me, Michael, if you don't agree on this, but it seems that the four categories are, first of all, first, the, the largest category by far would be men, I mean, those men, essentially, who commit serial sexual homicide, right? So you've got this, you know, kind of preoccupation with dominating women and, and, and sort of, um, you know, uh, reducing them to, you know, to just pure objects, and there's rape and, and murder repeatedly, right? Sometimes torture. Mm-hmm. Then you have our, these people who, kill people in the same way, you know, one after the other. So, But but it's really just about kind of overarching hatred, like, a, like a, just a, a kind of a misanthropic kind of a thing, right? Like a, sort of like Zodiac, Zodiac killer, or right? Or Hatcher in Missouri that just killed right. one person after another because he just right. had general misanthropy. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Or, 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 or Willie Pickett, who, who wasn't uh, actually raping the prostitutes that came to the farm, he was just killing them, you know, and wanted yeah. to kill one, you know, a certain amount was irritated. He was one short. Then you've got, mo- you know, mothers who kill one child after the other. These are generally these Munchausen's by proxy kind of situations. And then you've got these angels of death. You know, uh, you have Donald Harvey types. You know, who are these people who experience godlike feelings when they kill their patients or their charges or something? Those are the, the, the real four categories you generally see. And um, what, what what happens is that on the scale, you know, it seems like it's arbitrary and it's just based on how terrible they are and so forth. But if you look at the scale carefully, it's really very clear. You know, like, for example, Category 17, there has to be two murders, right? So the person meets current criteria for serial killing, two murders separated in time. But there is a sexual element to it, and there's no torture. Clear. Mm-hmm. So then we see, for example, um, people that would fall into that category are a lot of garden variety sexual, you know, men who commit serious sexual homicide where there's no torture at all. Then category 18, there can be a sexual element, but the idea is that person meets criteria for serial killing, but there's a non-protracted torture, like you would see in somebody like Ted Bundy, mm-hmm. some strangling or so forth, or Jerry Brudos who was lifting women slowly just a little bit off the ground, you know, by rope around the neck, 
but it wasn't the kind of extreme torture you see in, in somebody like David Porcaret. Category 19 is for people who don't kill, but who subjugate people who do extremely sadistic things to them, like, for example, um, uh, Gary Christ, who buried Barbara Jane Mackel alive underground mm -hmm. um, at length. Totally unnecessary. Um, it was just this kind of uh, coup de grace, you know, in addition to having, um, you know, basically tried to extort money from a family. It was just out of some narcissistic need that he did it. Then category 20 is for where there's extreme torture, potentially sexual crimes. There is serial murder, but it's clearly in the context of psychosis. This is where you replace somebody like Albert Fish, and someone right as a psychosis person, find particularly mm -hmm. fascinating because Albert Fish was clearly a psychopathic person who additionally was disinhibited by psychotic illness. Um, yeah. Then you have category 21. This is where you have all the kind of extreme torture you would see in a category 22 killer, but there's never been murder. And this is somebody like um, Cameron Hooker, who kept uh, poor Colleen Stan, you know, living in a box 23 hours a day with an air blower and took her out only to put her on a stretch rack or engage in sexual abuse. Uh, you know, and then the, the coffin was inside the bed where he and his wife were sleeping, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and then, of course, we've discussed category two. And it's, so it's quite clear, you know, when, when you're dealing with true serial killers, they fall into these categories very nicely. And, um, and then there are these rare kind of serial killers that go into some earlier places on the scale, like 16, because there isn't any rape, and there, you know, but there is repeat murder, and there's no torture, so a lot of them wind up in Category 16. Well, well, gentlemen, this has been an incredible, uh, very interesting uh, conversation. Yes. Just, uh, we could just go on forever, but uh, the time won't allow it. So. <laughs> but uh, we really yeah. appreciate it, and, and thank you very much. I know the listeners are going to love this. And uh, Now, do you guys have a website or something that people can go to to find out more information about what you guys do? Well, I think the best thing would be to, to pick up the new evil. I mean, the uh, you, you get you get pretty much anything you want to know there, and everything we've discussed would be in there. And of course, mm -hmm. Michael's Michael Fryer book, The Anatomy of Evils, is really a classic, wonderful book. Um, but but you know, don't read it at nighttime. These are these are disturbing <laughs> disturbing stories, and we don't hold back. We don't hold back. Oh, fantastic, guys. Uh, we'll have the book up on our website so people can do one click while they're listening at night mm -hmm. and uh, buy the book. Get the audio. It's Thank even you better. very much. We appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. Thank nice you. to meet you, guys. Yes. Thank you. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www houseofmystery.com Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. <laughs>